Plot twists. We are obsessed with them. In film, life and love, they turn up everywhere. It's that moment in a story that takes you in an unexpected direction. I'm Tom, super fan of cinema, sport, comedy, and I'm part of the old impression. And throughout this series, brought to you by Now and Sky, I'll be interviewing TV and film stars, asking them all about the plot twist moments that define their lives and careers. So expect the unexpected, and hopefully some behind-the-scenes gems you've never heard before. Expect spoilers. Hey there. I've been looking forward to this. Our guest this week is one of Britain's most loved comics, Omi Jalili. One of the few Brits who's actually had success internationally. Think of all the comedy success he's had, but also the films he's been in. He started in one of my favourite films ever in Gladiator. He was cast <laughs> perfectly in The Mummy. And then Mamma Mia as well, just to name a few. That's pretty strong. That is a good resume. And I often find with comedians, you can sit back, you can give them the topic, give them the question, they'll run away with it, they'll entertain you. And Omid was no different, let me tell you. And whilst he is a British institution in comedy circles, he's also known for his Iranian heritage, something he's very proud about. He talks a lot about it. It's actually a big part of, of his comedy and has been since he started in the mid-90s. But with everything that has transpired in Iran, particularly after the tragic death of Mars Amini, I think he would openly say he's taken on a different role, more of an activist. And I was aware that whilst this conversation would be full of brilliant storytelling, very funny, we'd also probably touch on things that are more meaningful to Omid. He's very prominent online, particularly on Twitter. And I just happened to find something the morning of our recording that I thought might be a nice little starting point. So we're going to go straight there. Here is the very talented, very funny Omid Jalili on Plot Twist. I mean, it's a pleasure. I'm I'm thrilled to have you on. It's really lovely. Um, I often do a little bit of digging into my guests and I like to find a little bit of trivia, something fun. But actually this week, if I felt like I had to start on something that was a little bit more difficult, a little bit more somber and that you've retired from playing football. Yes, that's the big thing. <laughs> that's the thing. I've, I've always loved football. I've always played football. I've, I've played, would you believe, at a pretty good level all my life. I played for... Kensington and Chelsea schools. I went on to play for my school team, West London football team, college team. Then I played university. Even then I played in some Iranian league in London. And then um, the clips I've shown is with the bits you've seen on television, <laughs> yeah. which are all comedy clips. I mean, it was me playing up to the camera a little bit. But also when you play football, you always think you're still going to be spotted by Brentford. And, and, <laughs> and the highs and lows. And I, I wanted to post it because of the highs and lows, because... There was some terrible moments that have happened where on live on television, I missed a clear and open goal and I should have passed it to Ruth Hullett, who was the world player of the year twice in his career. And uh, I dilly dallied and um, they all made fun of me, Ian Wright, Rodney Marsh. And I've always felt embarrassed and I've always felt that I was a joke figure. And then I got to take a shot against Robo Keeper, which even Lionel Messi couldn't score against. Cristiano Ronaldo couldn't do it. This is like Long, a machine-like figure, it's isn't it? It's a machine-like it robot, save yeah. Any it can save any anything. Kick. It has this laser scan, which can scan where the eyes are and where eyes are looking and where you're going to shoot. So it anticipates where you're going to shoot. So even when I shoot against it, it can see I'm going for the top left. So it already goes there. But I, I must have got through one by a millimetre, the one and only point which you can shoot. And I did it in my first go. And that healed every single football hurt I ever had. And now I can't really reach any more highs. So I'm gracefully retiring from football. And uh, also I live in Suffolk and there was a mini tsunami in Felixstowe and um, a geologist seemed to connect it. Well, there's a direct correlation with me playing football for the Ipswich, uh, old boys 11, <laughs> and felt that, that I should stop playing for, ge for geological reasons. I mean, going back to that previous point, you're 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 leaving on a high and doing something that Messi has never done, which is yeah. quite extraordinary. So I think. And actually, know. can I tell you, Tom? Many people don't think that's the, that's the case, but it finally had some. When I tweeted that football people like Chris Kamara, you know, David Badil, who knows football, they all understood yeah. that is actually what took place, which is a miracle. So miracles can happen. I think that's the the reason why I put it out is never give up hope. 
when I wrote a book, it was called Hopeful, because my name means hope. Omid means hope. I mean, my first joke was, in, in the Persian language, Omid means hope. It's a, it's a shame that Jalili means less. That was my <laughs> one of my first ever jokes. And um, and I think that it's it's a it's a real sign that however bad things can get, and even if there's no way you can do something, some miracle will happen. I mean, that is a miracle that I've done something Lionel Messi could not achieve. He actually did achieve it on his 16th go, uh, but I did it first time one go live wow. on television, and that's for a middle-aged man. It's actually, they actually decommissioned RoboKeeper after that. They just thought some fat middle-aged bloke could do it <laughs> on his first go. This ain't, this ain't all that. <laughs> I Hand on heart, I'm a big, big football fan. I have never seen someone score against that thing until I saw that clip earlier this morning. Yeah, it is unbelievable. So, it, it, and no, and no yeah. one thought, that's why I went bananas. Yeah. And actually, I got home, I told my wife, did you see what I did? She goes, you just looked like I was kicking a ball in the playground. <laughs> what are you, a child? And I said, no, I did what Messi couldn't do. She goes, now listen to me. This is really inappropriate for you to say that you do something that the top footballer in the world can't do. That's not true. And it's embarrassing. Stop it. But I said, but I have. And no one believed it. And in fact, the first time the clip went out, it was on a Vimeo link. And Gary Lineker retweeted it and John Bishop and everyone. And the Vimeo link, I should have put a YouTube link, but a Vimeo link, yeah. and it happened in 2014. It crashed after 50,000. I got to 50,000 views in 35 minutes. So I've been begging them to retweet it again. They haven't. Uh, so I put it in this in my retirement reel. And now people are retweeting it, which is very nice. And, and it's football people who are sending it out because they know they know the significance. They know, of it. Yeah, they know what it means. They know what it means. That's pretty mm. cool. I was going to ask you, actually, but, you know, you're, you're very active on Twitter and there's, your, your comedy is, is very much present. You also talk about Iran, of course. But do you, do you enjoy the sort of social media space? Do you enjoy being active on, on, on a space like Twitter? I think this, it's one of those things where social media is, it's used for different reasons. Comedians use it to self-promote. I mean, you can you can sell out a tour. I mean, someone like Eddie Izzard can put one tweet out and sell out a whole stadium mm. tour. And um, I'm not quite at that level. Ricky Gervais can do that. Um, so we use it to advertise. But also with regards to Iran, because the there's a revolution happening and what they do, these dictatorships, they shut the internet down. So through this, some kind of VPN, you know, backdoor, you can put out a couple of videos and social media then becomes a weapon and it becomes a real tool to share awareness. And that's actually a bit of a shift I had when, when Mahsa Amini was killed, which was a 22 year old woman who was killed just for, mm. you know, not wearing a hijab properly. I knew this was a flashpoint and I knew something was different and I knew my life was going to change, that my life on social media would change because then I had to be, I suppose, a voice amplifying the voices inside Iran that couldn't speak up. So in a sense, I shifted from being a comedian to basically an activist. I mean, that's what's my, my friend Maz Jabrani, who's a comedian in, in L.A., because I'm, I'm no longer a comedian. I'm, a, I'm an activist and I'm going on TV shows. I'm going on radio shows and speaking seriously, and you have to speak seriously and coherently about things that matter to a lot of people. It's not just the people in Iran, it's, it's a global issue. So if I can use my platform for that, then that's a, that's a good thing. Kudos to you. I wanted to talk to you later about Iran and, and the work that you're, you're yes. doing, because it is, it is extraordinary. But I thought actually before then, I want to talk about plot twists, of course. Yes. Talk about what uh, you're promoting. You're a fellow podcaster as well. Um, but also you've moved to Suffolk in lockdown and I wondered how that life is treating you. Are you enjoying it out there? Are you, are you in Ed Sheeran's village or are you somewhere tucked away somewhere else? Not far from Ed Sheeran, but as you're a football fan, I'm not far from George Burley. You know, the, okay. the, Ips, the yeah. Ipswich Town team of the 1980s, yeah. who I was a big fan of. Not far from Alan Brazil. I'm not far from John Walk. It's very interesting. All those players still live in the area. And I remember Alan Brazil talking about Ipswich being such a wonderful place. And obviously, because a lot of those players ne never left. Uh, one of the first houses we saw was the house of Sir Bobby Robson, which was before that the house of Sir Alf Ramsey. So people stick in the area and they love it. And they're there are some beautiful houses, incredibly cheap. And it's a lovely place, to a, a lovely part of the world to, to live. So I'm extremely happy. Yes, that was a sliding doors moment. It was after it was after pandemic. My wife said, we, we, we have to move. And I said, well, I, I'm a comedian. I'll go anywhere except for East Anglia. They, they don't like me there because I'm thinking <laughs> East Anglia. I said, well, as long as not Suffolk. I don't do too much. I'm thinking Suffolk. Well, as long as not Ipswich. They hate me in Ipswich because I'm thinking Ipswich. Well, as long as it's nowhere near the Regent Theatre, place just behind the theatre, the one place they don't like me. So <laughs> never say never. <laughs> but you end up, 
in the places you never thought you'd be. But I'm, I'm very happy to be here. And it was a sliding doors moment. But I don't think I'd be here if it wasn't for the pandemic. I see it's uh, speaking, uh, I think it was an article about moving there and that you'd had a few gigs there that probably weren't your most memorable, shall we say. Is, is that true? Is that true that you actually yes. did a few there and they, they didn't go down so well for you? They, all, they always seem to coincide with Ipswich Town losing 4-0 at home. And then everyone would come. It was on a Saturday and then they'd come to my show, Grumpy. And if they didn't laugh at the first few things, they'd sit there and and heckle and hammer me on Twitter afterwards. So the, the people at the theatre said you never had a bad gig, but to me it wasn't it, it wasn't the best. But you know, now that I've done it, now that I've moved here, and that you've become like a son of the area, uh, you're a hero. In fact, I went to the, I did a I did a little uh, speech to the Ipswich fans in. Um, February of last year, 2022, they're playing Cheltenham Town. There's still 21,000 people. Yeah, Portman yeah. Road at halftime. It's a yeah. Tuesday night game, 21,000 people there. And and even all my friends said, no, don't do that joke. It's such a crap dad joke. Don't, and I said, no, I think they'll like it. People are begging me, comedians, to say, you're doing this, just don't do the joke. This is your stupid joke. Because they asked me at halftime, why did you move? Why are you here in Ipswich? And I said, I came here because I had a hip replacement and it went so well, so I decided to stay. So I'm the only person who came to Ipswich for a hip switch. And <laughs> I couldn't believe the laugh it got. And then I did a, I did a Shefki Kuki dive. There was a player called Shefki Kuki who played just for one what season. What a maverick he was. Yeah. What a maverick was. And every time he scored a goal, he did the swan dive, so he used to throw himself up in the air like a swan. Then, But yeah. I didn't realise he landed balletically. I... At the end, I said, I'd like to just pay tribute to Paul Mariner, who's just passed away. I'd like to do the Shevki Kuki dive as a striker. And literally behind one end of the goal, uh, South Ramsey, I think more the other side, I can't remember, you know, the South, the South, the South Ramsey Stadium, I threw myself in the air and I landed, landed face first and my head bounced off the turf. And I got up and there was mud on my nose. I was concussed. And I, I literally, my eyes were crossed with mud on my nose. And I was waving and everyone's going, you legend, <laughs> you legend. <laughs> What's he doing in a suit? Throw himself up in the air. Yeah. I was, it, was, it was a method celebration. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, really went for it. Yeah, he was, he was some player. I'm going to ask you a first plot twist question, Omid. Okay. So the first one is centred around, so I, just, I suppose, the ultimate plot twist in, in your life, uh, the sliding door moment that's perhaps changed your trajectory, your narrative, what comes to mind if there was a standout plot twist moment? The first one was when I was 12 years old. And I remember very clearly wanting to be an astrophysicist. And I remember in class, in a science class, teacher said, I heard you want to be an astrophysicist. Yeah, I want to be an astrophysicist. I want to create the first colony on, on Mars. And I believe I can do it. This is, a, this is around 1977. It's my first year at Holland Park School. And people in class said, what are you talking about? You're never going to do that. I said, first of all, you've got to be an astronaut. I said, yeah, I'll be an astronaut as well, and I'll be there, and uh, I'll do it. And it was, it, and people were all making fun of me. They really have a go at me. And then one day, towards the end of 77, I turned 12, I got this letter from NASA. It said, you have been chosen by NASA to man a flight to the, the first flight to Mars which will be in about 10 years' time. You will be 22 years of age. You will come to Cape Canaveral for training. Uh, your parents will be informed separately. Uh, just be aware now. And I remember showing my parents this. I was so proud. I had, I had this logo, NASA, and my parents were crying, and I was so excited. And uh, I went to school ready to tell everyone, and someone just said, did anyone get that stupid letter that came through about NASA? <laughs> Who, who, who did that? These are 12-year-old kids. Like, who knew it was a joke? I didn't know it was a joke. I thought I, thought I was chosen. And I, said, so, and I said, what did you do with the letter? They goes, I binned it. And I said, yeah, someone's a bit sick. You know, someone's trying to like, someone's taking the piss. So I didn't say anything. And then at that moment, I remember thinking, I don't want to be an astrophysicist. I can't. This is, someone is making fun of me. And that's when I shifted. And that's when I amazingly started doing sketches in school, I started doing plays. And then the next moment, the first play we did at school, there was a show called Not the Nine O'Clock News that was huge on television with Rowan Atkinson, Mel Smith, Griff Jones and Pamela Stevenson. It was a show we all watched. And um, amazingly, he knew the writer of this play called, it was a Scott Joplin review. 
And um, I think I did something funny and I dropped my pants. I, I had an American accent and everyone thought I was funny. And Mel Smith came. Mel Smith at the height of the Not Nine O'Clock News fame. This is around 1981, 82, and he came backstage. So you're like late, late teens at this point? Yeah, I, I was now yeah. 15, 15 right. years of age. And um, he was obviously told, go and say hello to the kids. And he just stood there. He was stood there like embarrassed. He, he must have been about 28 or something. He didn't know what to do with himself with his kids. Yeah. So I went up to him. I was only one, and I hugged him. I said, you're my hero. And he said, you're my hero too. And I said, what are you talking about? Because you're very funny. And he said, you should think about it. I said, think about what? He said, you know, wow. think about a career in comedy. I must have got some kind of goal because he, he actually is one of the most naturally funny performers. Because you just look at him and you laugh. Mm. And he said, you've got something. He goes, you've really got something. And I really enjoyed watching you. And, and I said, and I never really paid much attention to it. It was only when I told a few people later in my 20s, they said, oh, my God, Mel Smith. And then amazingly, exactly 15 years from that moment when I was 30 years old or 29, I think 29, 30, the first agency that took me on was Talkback, which was run by Mel Smith and Rufus Jones. So, um, and, and he said, I, I said, I, you came and he barely remembered it because, oh, I remember going to some school and there was a funny kid. Was that you? I said, yeah. He goes, oh my God. Well, there you go. We've taken you on now. They're true to my word. That is I told incredible. You. It's incredible. It's a, it's a real, uh, if you're talking about a twist, plot twist moment, that was something. And, and always those plot twist moments when they happen, they're always underplayed in your head. You don't realize how significant they are until you analyze it later. But um, because when he was complimenting me, I didn't really, didn't really wash. I, hadn't, I couldn't hear compliments. I just was so happy he was there. That's extraordinary. I also think, you know, looking back, if you hadn't have had that conversation, it's always interesting to think, would you have still followed that path? Would you have somehow discovered it yeah. anyway and have gone into comedy? I find that really interesting. I think it's interesting as, as it happened, I fell into comedy by accident because I, uh, I'd been to the Edinburgh Festival doing a serious play and I won awards. I was a serious actor. There was a bit of comedy in, in it. And then, um, I don't know what happened. I did some comedy at the Edinburgh Festival. Then I started doing comedy clubs. It was it was a great, a lovely um, Jewish comedian called Ivor Dembina said, look, we should, we should do a, a double act. And we did a show called Arab and the Jew, which was just after Yitzhak Rabin was shot uh, tragically in 1995. So in 1996, um, Ivor Dembina kind of took me under his wing and, and really showed me the ropes, showed me how to be a comedian, how to write material, and um, it was by accident. And, and when I did a, an open spot at a comedy club, remarkably, people laughed. And uh, I, I even remember the first joke. The first joke was, um, my full my name is Omid Jalili, full name, Omid Abu Abdul Qasim Tahad Ibrahim Mamdua, but call me Trevor, was the, was the, was the, which still, <laughs> amazingly, it's, it's such a silly joke. But at the time, there was a lot of people who were an ethnic minority who just used names like Max or Jimmy or mm. you know, lots of Indians and Muslims. And, and a lot of people were just ashamed to be Iranian or a Muslim or something. And, and I, I wasn't a Muslim. I was a Baha'i as well. And I was very proud to be a Baha'i. But I also felt I need to keep my name. And I was just making fun of the people mm. who did change their name. Because I always remembered Hanif Qureshi, who wrote My Beautiful Laundrette. And I thought, well, he's kept his name. And I, and I just, it just made me think, if you're good, people will remember your name. And actually, that's what happened. I, I learned when people had seen me in The Mummy or Gladiator, people's taxi driver would say, oh, I've seen you get in. Then they'd stop because, weren't you in that film or in that series? And then by 2005, they goes, hello, I'm going to get in. They knew my name because I was on live with the Apollo. So over the years, they got to learn the name, and I thought that was important. I love that plot twist. That's amazing. And also 12, at the age of 12, that was quite a, a, a you know, I mean, that whole time, it, you're very impressionable. But also I discovered that you were under 12 uh, diving champion uh, yes. at school. Yeah. So, you know, it was a big time in your life, clearly. <laughs> that, actually, that was, I, I didn't really, amazingly, they got the certificate right because the certificate was filled out by my swimming teacher. Because at the swimming gala, which is a, it's a West London schools gala, the, when they, they'd always say the name of the kid and the name of the school, they said Johnny Ward from Ashburnham School. And then he'd always say, um, um, uh, Omar, um, he said Mr. X from St. Mary Abbott School. So 
every time I dived, they said, here comes Mr. X. And it was like a joke, you know, you know and, and you can say it was a bit racist that they just couldn't get my name right. But it was Mr. X and I won it. I remember winning and my teacher going over because his name is Omin Jalili. And let's write the certificate out now because you, t- you, st- you took the winner's certificate home. You didn't get a trophy, you just got a winner's certificate. And um, I was very grateful to her. Her name was Wendy Law. And her name is on the, on the certificate. And that was the first time I remember thinking, I have to do big things for people to remember my name. <laughs> so that was also a big moment. I was only 10, 11, I think, at the time. And um, it was uh, even now when I put it out on Twitter or on Instagram, I, I joke about it. So it was, it was, an under 12, it was under 12 boys beauty pageant. I just fell in. <laughs> the 70s were a very different time. <laughs> yeah. But even then, you've got, you've got a joke about it. So, so I, I, yeah. I do, interesting enough, I do feel kind of scarred by things, but I think it's because I'm a comedian. I'm a trained to be a bit more thick-skinned about it and, and remember it fondly with a, with, a, with a tongue firmly in my cheek. Oh, good for you, good for you. You mentioned uh, Gladiator. I actually put it on last night, which was a bad idea because I thought, I'll just, I'll just watch the beginning bit. And, well, you know, can't see, stop see. Watching it. and then and you can't stop watching it because it is just one of the best films ever made. But um, you've got a few scenes, obviously... That, that first scene in particular with Oliver Reed plays uh, Proximo. Yes. What was it like working with him? Because seeing him on screen, you get this sort of true thespian. And we know that behind the scenes, uh, he was perhaps a, a troubled man. What were your experiences with him on set like? It must have been incredible. Well, first of all, he was incredibly popular with the crew. And he must have done lots of films. All the crew knew him. It was, he goes, hello, Ollie. And he knew their names. All right, Jimbo. Hey, Stewie. He'd like and they hug and kiss and you know, all these like grips and all the sparks and all the crew people. So he was extremely popular. And when we sat down and we started talking, because I had I had a good couple of days with him when we shot our scenes. You you with each other and on on, on film sets, ninety percent of it is is sitting and chatting. The only ten percent is getting up, preparing, rehearsing. So I got to know him pretty well, and I, I found him incredibly charming and very giving and very open about his life and his career and and he said that he had been four months teetotal he said that Ridley Scott wanted him for the film but Steven Spielberg producer at DreamWorks didn't and he had to prove that his blood sugar was alcohol free so he'd been he'd been completely alcohol free for a few months and he did die tragically because he he, he didn't you know, he was. A, there's a place called the Pub in Malta, which is an Irish pub, and uh, some I think English sailors came in and they they badged him into a drinking competition, and he wasn't used to. He won the drinking competition, mm. but his body then wasn't used to the alcohol. He the took a final. He, yeah. he took the final rum shot and never really gained uh, consciousness. But that film was was a sliding doors moment, I think, because uh, two things happened on that movie which were very, uh, I suppose game-changing for me. One was seeing the way Ridley Scott worked at that high level, where the first shot is a push-in on um, Oliver Reed's face, which is my point of view. And I said, Proxima, my old friend, nice to see you again. <laughs> and I, so I'm behind the camera doing the lines, and then he's just doing a push-in. And then he's a cut, and he goes, we've got one second of dead time. And he said, I need, um, I need a dog or a dwarf. And a man showed up with a small person and a dog. He goes, I just need them to, to wipe past. And they did it. And he goes, okay, let's just have, just have the dog. Or, the, or one of them, I can't remember. It's either the small person. And then it was, we did it again. And there was one, because he's so used to doing commercials, there was that one little bit of the frame wasn't filled. And I think it's a, the dog or the small person. I can't quite remember. If you mm. watch it back, something is in the yeah. background of that shot. And it made me realize, my goodness, that's the level of detail they work on these big, big movies. And then also the, the humility of certain people. There was a German guy hanging around set. And I said, hello, what's your name? And he said, Hans. I said, what do you do? He goes, I'll do the music. Oh, gosh, said, Hans Zimmer. Yeah, it's, it was Hans Zimmer. And I said, yeah. um, oh, really? What have you done before? And he started mentioning films I'd never heard of. He goes, is there nothing you've done I've heard of? He goes, oh, yeah, there's maybe something you've heard of on YouTube TV. Hey, did you ever watch a, a TV program with Henry Kelly called Going for Gold? I said, going for gold. Because yeah, yeah, I wrote that. I remember thinking, this film's going to be shit. <laughs> he wrote going for gold and he's got this massive film. This film's going to be a disaster. 
He goes, yeah, I'm so proud because you, you said that's your going for. So that's the genius. You remember the, the you remember the jingle. So he wrote going for gold. That was the only thing I remember thinking that guy is. But he was so humble, and he's now the number mm. one film oh, soundtrack, soundtrack guy. Yeah. Film. So, so that really taught me beautiful. that the higher level, the higher the level that you work at, uh, I suppose the really good people are humble and just get on with what they're doing. It was a big, yeah. big life lesson. They probably know where they are, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Gosh, his, uh, the soundtrack to that film, and actually even things like The Dark Knight, which he did with Christopher Nolan. Oh, my is, God. Oh. Um, but he also describes it so in such simplistic terms. He just says, in this scene, we need drums, we need the suspense. There's no sort of eloquent detail there. It's just the simplistic sort of instrumental input to that scene. Yeah, he's very simplistic and, the way he's done. And he would yeah. watch the scenes. He would watch. He'd watch very carefully. And I kept saying, do you need to be here? Because no, yeah, it's good to sometimes come and feel you feel the, the moment and you just so he was there watching the scenes. He was watching me. You know, he watched this, you know, he watched Oliver Reed grab my nether regions and was laughing. Yes. <laughs> because that bit does not need any music. Yeah. <laughs> I think you, you provided a good sound for that. <laughs> uh, I'm glad we spoke about that. It was uh, I was very keen to know more. I wanted to talk to you about um Iran. We mentioned it at the beginning and you said about, you know, now as much an activist as you are a comedian and actor yeah i suppose actually you know in, in the uk we know you as sort of a sort of a british institution really in in, in comedy terms because you've been on screens for for many years and i think you were even the last person to make the queen laugh in public did you know that, that well true? the last the last person before liz, when when the queen met liz truss right. she, <laughs> it's a right. great show i was laughing like are you the prime minister um, I did, yes, I did uh, the Queen's uh, Platinum Jubilee pageant. And, uh, you know, as a comic, it was, it was a big moment because I was holding the whole thing together. Mm. I played a Herald, um, and the Herald was a part which they specifically told me the Queen chose. The Queen was given a shortlist. Because I said, why, why, why would I want to do this? I said, no, you've been chosen by the Queen. I said, oh, rubbish. And they said, no, we'll speak to the person, her right-hand man, who knows who's putting this all together. Because, oh, yes, we... We gave Her Majesty a list and her finger just pointed at you. I said, I bet she didn't know how to pronounce my name. <laughs> they said she did, actually. She pronounced your name. Oh, and I said, what is, a, what is the Herald? They said, the Herald is, uh, we've got hosts on the night, the people like Damien Lewis, people like Tom Cruise. But the Herald is someone who is the conduit between the people and the, the monarchy. So there's someone there who, can, who is like the Queen's right-hand man, but can, is also part of the people. And I said, you want me to play that role? They went, yeah, you've got to dress up. So I had to dress up almost like this beef, weird, beefy, beefy to costume. <laughs> but uh, but, I would, but they were, it was going well on the night. And then um, as comics, you have to address the elephant in the room. And I remember, I remember in rehearsal, we hadn't addressed it because a few days before, she'd blown off the state opening of parliament, which she hadn't, she's supposed to be there for the state opening of parliament, didn't go. First time in 70 years, didn't go. Mm. But she showed up to, to this horse pageant. And uh, afterwards, they told me um, there's a reason why she came, and I'll tell you in a minute. But um, I felt I had, it was an elephant in the room. So when we were saying goodbye to her, I just said to her, thank you for choosing us over the state opening of parliament. And there was a massive laugh. And she, she that with her hand. She, she didn't laugh, she just she did her hand up, which, it, which is open to interpretation. It, it can be, nice one, fat boy, you're spot on. Or it could mean off with his head, which is what the Telegraph thought, <laughs> or, 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 the, or the Sun. The, the Sun newspaper thought, she said, look at the tits on him, which I think was very, which is very disrespectful. Um, but she acknowledged the joke and afterwards said it was a really fun evening. And she, she came because uh, she was told it was going to be a fun night. It wasn't going to be your normal thing. And actually, I did the warm up beforehand. And usually when the Queen comes, there's four or five thousand people there. The Queen usually comes and there's reverence. But because I did the warm-up, I told them when the Queen comes in, give her a cheer like she's never had before because it'll probably be the last time we'll be together. And when she came in, she said she couldn't believe it. The, the, the applause and the scream was so thunderous. The horses that were in front of her were spooked. She'd never seen them spooked. Oh, and wow. she said she was desperately moved by that because usually they, she arrives in silence and reverence. But this time she really felt the love of the people. So I feel sorry that I, I probably did something I shouldn't have done. 
But actually, I'm very proud that she she remembered that. She, so she did the hand to acknowledge the joke. Yeah. But she also mentioned that she'd never had a, a thunderous welcome like that before. So I feel really proud that that was all down to my my mischievous nature. But oh, you should be very proud. It was it's a, a special great moment, moment, isn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah. When you do those sort of things and all the experience that you've had, and I know you were at the Albert Hall the other day for a benefit performance for Syria and Turkey. Yeah. Um, did you feel the pressure? Do you get sort of the sort of pre-match nerves still, or is it sort of part of yeah, the? Of course, of course. If, if you don't have nerves, you know, even when I play football, well, I've stopped playing football now, but even in my fifties, when you line up for a Vets eleven aside game just before the ref blows the whistle, I'm not relaxed. I'm nervous, you know. And even before I go on stage, I'm I'm nervous. It's, it's not something I'm, you have to train yourself. That this is something you were born to do. You know, you know, comedians always have this thing. They look in the mirror and goes, "I'm funny. I know I'm funny. I've got the right to be here." We give ourselves little mantras, um, but I, I think that this—if you don't feel nervous—means it means you don't care. And I think in life, nerves are a good thing. Actually, everything—everything mm. everything that you feel is important. Nerves, anger—you should be. Anger is not a bad thing. Anger is a as a sign that you sh- you want to do something that you care. Um, so. Yeah, it's a it's a passion. So, if you want to go and talk about Iran, I was outraged and very viscerally affected by what's happening in Iran. So that's why I'm I'm even was was acting. I've been acting unconsciously. Even in fact, family members have told me, like, be careful what you say. You can't just act on impulse. You've got to be a bit more wise in your choice of language. Even you can't go around calling them a terrorist regime. I said, what should I say? He said, well, you'd be a bit more clever, say, you know, you condemn the machinery of oppression that has taken away the human rights of the Iranian people for the last 44 years. You know, there, there's ways of doing it. There's ways, there's a, there's a more, you know, you're a Libran as well. Librans are exquisitely diplomatic. So I have to try and draw on those reserves as well. But But I was viscerally affected by it, which is why, you know, I've given my social media over to it. Is it... Master Armenian and everything that transpired from that that has stoked the fire in you, would you say? Yes. I, well, it, it, this revolution has been coming for 44 years. For, mm. I've lived with it. Um, my life was changed by it. I was quite a popular kid at school when I was 12. I was 12 years old, 12, 13, popular kid. There was another Iranian kid at school called Bardia Barajaste, who I've just reconnected with. We used to talk Persian. Oh, wow all the time. And then when the Iranian revolution happened, it was on telly all the time. This is what we don't understand. That revolution was on telly every single day. And this revolution is being hidden for some reason. So that's why we're doing everything we can to amplify it. But back then in 1979, when the mullahs took over, Mm. we knew that life in Iran would change. And we had to be careful because they were also violent. They were also just killing people. I mean, literally wiping people. I mean, because I'm I'm a I'm a Baha'i, which is a, a a faith that grew out of Islam in the same way Christianity grew out of Judaism. So there's a it's it's a, a legitimate global faith, but it's not an offshoot of Islam. It's it, Christianity and, and Judaism and are connected, but they're completely separate. So mm-hmm. so the, the Baha'is are seen as apostates. So they were just wiping out Baha'is. People, People who I knew were just killed, you know, just shot in the head. And the families were given bullets. They had to pay for the bullets as well. They were given bills. So it was so cruel, so awful. So we've lived for many years hoping something would happen. And we knew the Masa Amini moment when she was killed on the 13th of September. My first post was on the 20th of September on Instagram. And I knew it was different, which is why I was quite cryptic. I said, well, I hope now we will see change like that because... You know, it's a big prospect to call for regime change. And as a Baha'i, I'm a, you know, we're not a political group, so I couldn't do that. Mm-hmm. But I'm hoping, we're all hoping for change. We're hoping for something to be radically different now. And I think the people of Iran are calling for um, these people to finally go, you know. And I think that is something you can only support. And it's something that the injustice is so cruel. It's so appalling in fact, they said the worst thing a good the worst thing a good man could do is stay silent. So I think that by being active and being vociferous, it's it's the least I can do. Well, good for you to, for bringing those things to the surface using your your platform. It's uh, I mean an extraordinary level of bravery, isn't it, displayed by women in in, in Iran? 
Oh, right now it's it's unbelievable because you know Masamini was killed because of the hijab. So then they said, "Oh, we're going to relax hijab," and now they've cracked down on hijab because the supreme mm. leader says this is the bedrock of our regime. This is the bedrock of what we believe in, which is to subjugate women. But now I've spoken to people inside Iran that goes, "If you walk around, out of twenty women." 12 to 16 are not wearing hijab. There are people who want to wear hijab. And I think it's very important that it's what they're protesting against is enforced hijab. The mm -hmm. same people outside of the country like myself, we're, we're speaking up for against enforced hijab in the same way in France around 2018, where they were forcing women on a beach to take off the hijab. You can't tell women to do things like that. It's up to the women themselves. So it's freedom of choice. It's freedom of choice. It's a very, very key thing. And it is the one thing that the women are showing incredible brave bravery and fearlessness. And they're being shot in the eyes. They're being killed. They're being put in prison. If you see there are lots of videos out there where a woman is walking around but they're blurring out her face because they now have these, you know, this technology where they can do face recognition and go and find who you are and then freeze your bank account. Or they can you know, they can make things life very hard for you, but they don't care. They they carry on. And by the way, they are gassing schoolgirls. They are they're targeting schools for girls and they're gassing them to tell them off to, to say this is what happens when you fight us. But the women carry on. So you can do what you can do whatever you like. It's not gonna change the emancipation of women, and we will do what we want to do, which is why ultimately we believe that women will win. And any revolution that has started that is women-led is always successful. It's like had about 85, 90% success when the women are behind something. So we're watching things very carefully. And it's, I think it's very important for the whole world to see what's going on, because if, if the women are successful there, it will have massive ramifications and impact mm -hmm on the rest of the world. That's, that's why I'm interested. I'm interested not just as an Iranian. I think most people around the world should be interested in this because it's a, it's a massive, it's, it's gender apartheid mm. and, and, and women are always going to win. So it's very interesting. Well, you think you said at the beginning, hope is the word, right? That's the, there we go. Um, very important. Good for you for what you're doing there. I've got to ask you another plot twist question. Mm -hmm. Plot twist person, a surprise entity that has influenced you, someone that you wouldn't have expected to have an influence that has come into your life. Is there, I imagine you've had quite a few people, but is there anyone in particular that, that springs to mind? There, there's quite a few, but I think for, for the purposes of this podcast, I think I should just mention Whoopi Goldberg, because in 2002, I was Perrier nominated for a show which was about a 9-11 and not many comedians were doing a whole hour about 9-11. It was a, such a massive global event, but comedians would do like a joke and move on. Remember Adam Hills had a five minute story about it. Um, I'm thinking, oh, good on him. He's, he's actually dealt with it, but no one did a whole, whole theme show about it. And uh, I got a deal with NBC in America, even before the UK, NBC said, we'd like you to do a show. And then just before, we will. We we the show was written, about to go into production. Just before that happened, the tanks rolled into Iraq, and they felt NBC felt let's not shoot this show. Let's pair you up with someone else. So Whippy Goldberg took me on, and I know that a lot of comedians you always think you want to do your own show, you want to be the the, the main guy, but because it was Whippy Goldberg, I thought actually there is something creative here. I can create a character and work with an Oscar winner and really worked closely because we were the two, she was the lead and I was the second lead in the show. So it was, it was a real opportunity to work with her. And she really took me under her wing and totally influenced the rest of my career trajectory. So that was a big plot twist moment that I couldn't do my own show, which probably we might have shot a, a pilot and it wouldn't have been, I don't think it would have been picked up. So here was a chance to do a show. You know, NBC does 15 pilots, and then only one gets through. So I was lucky to be in the one that then mm. did get picked up. So that was huge. So I got to work with her for a year. And um, what a double act that is. Oh, it was amazing. And it's oh, a, it's a to shame. See that now. Oh, it's, you can see it on YouTube, but it's it, it a show that only did one season. It didn't do more. It was, it was, it was basically Faulty Towers. It was a hotel comedy. She was like Basil, <laughs> and I was a conglomerate 
of Polly, Sybil and Manuel running this hotel with her. <laughs> it was a really funny show. Um, it was on just before Friends, the last series of Friends. Friends on a Thursday night, it was Whoopi, and then it was Friends. And the last episode of Friends, as in 50 million people watched it. Um, this is the year they also had Frasier on, on Tuesday mm. nights. So it was 203, 204. Huge shows. These are huge shows. And, um, but what was the moment for me that changed everything was I was getting very depressed that every time on these multi-camera sitcoms, you know, studio audience sitcoms, we do a read-through of the script on a Wednesday, then we rehearse Thursday and Friday. And the read-through always wrote me very two-dimensionally. They didn't really know how to write for Middle Eastern characters. So I would massage it, fix it, and make it work for me. Then we go in front of the cameras on Monday, then shoot it live in front of an audience on a Tuesday, big laughs. And then back on the Wednesday, the script would be back to your, your normal one-dimensional, two-dimensional stuff. So I remember getting very depressed by it. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg got up and gave a speech by, I think it was episode seven or eight. And she said, I had jokes. Is that the best you've got? We've got an award-winning comedian here. He's showing you how to write. He's putting everything in rehearsal, changing the shit you've written for him. She used that language, the shit you've written for him. He's turning into Shinola. And if you don't start writing something different, you're gone. And she fired, she fired a few of the writers. And I went and talked to her afterwards. I said, that was incredible that you did that. You don't need to do that. She just said, I got your back, baby. And then she said, <laughs> um, but then she said oh, something brilliant. that really was, but then she said, she said something that really, really changed my life. Actually, she said, because you people, she kept saying, you, I said, stop, stop calling us you people. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, you brown people, you, you crazies, are the towelhead crazy people. She, she used to joke around like that. She, did, she never meant it. She goes, she goes, you are for your people what Richard Pryor was for us. And I said, wow. I said, now would be, don't, oh, a compliment. I said, don't, don't go over the board. She goes, no, I'm serious. Richard Pryor, when he started off, he did comedy to appease white people and to be in society. So we trusted him. And then as he got older, it wasn't until his 40s, mid 40s, he started doing comedy for him. I was 37 at the time. She goes, you've now come up. You've done your stuff where you've been ironic about your, your, your people. You've made fun mm. of your people. You've done it. And now you got to keep doing stand-up because you're going to inspire whole other generation of people and I, I never thought like that and she said to me you and billy always make me laugh because you're as funny as billy and i'm, I'm i kept thinking who's she talking about and then it was only years later i thought she was talking about billy crystal and then over email a couple of years ago i said she goes you and billy make me cry. the only people from britain who make me cry so i said i'm really sorry who's this billy she went billy connolly i said how do you know billy connolly and she started swearing at me because don't you follow my career? She had given over her first HBO special to Billy Connolly. She did 15 minutes and she introduced Billy Connolly into American society. I said, I said, what, you're, you're comparing me to Billy Connolly? Billy Connolly's a different number. She goes, no, but you two are the two comedians in Britain who make me cry with laughter. And you're the only two people I've introduced to American society. So those two things where she... Anyway, it was very good for my ego, but you know, I'm I'm in my mid. I was going to say, I mean, that that is, I can't think of a bigger compliment, especially the Richard Pryor compliment. I mean, whether she, whether she was being serious or not, it doesn't matter. I took it that she <laughs> thought I was as funny as, but but the thing is, I'm not. And those people had huge impact, but but she was saying, if you take it in context, we haven't seen many brown comedians coming up, and actually at the time there were none. There were none. If mm. you look at all these good comedians now, you've got Ramesh Ranganathan now, and we've yeah, got in America, Maz Jabrani, Max Amini. There are a lot of a lot of people, even Shapi Hosandi. There was a whole bunch of people who've come through. But she goes, you got to remember the responsibility of being the first. So you and I said, so, and so what do I do? And she goes, you got to be really funny. That's what she said to me. <laughs> No and pressure. that was it. That was the. That was it. She goes, "That's your only focus. You just got to be really funny, and always remember that. Be guided by that, and don't do anything on stage that you don't think is funny. So don't let writers write for you. Don't let people. There'll always be people say, do this sketch or do that thing, and it's like, she goes, nah, you got to do what you think is funny.' 
And that was it. And I think that was the most game-changing moment. And so so what, what happened after that, that show finished, I came back to England. I did Live at the Apollo, the very first Live at the Apollo. And I'm very great, grateful to Jack D. It was, Jack, it was called Jack D Live at the Apollo. And he insisted that he had me because no one knew me. No one knew me. And he just kept saying, I'm, I'm with him at the comedy store and there's no one you know, takes the roof off like him. He's got to be on this show. So if you saw that first series, there was Joan Rivers, Ross Noble, there was a whole bunch of very high, mm. high level people. And I was the one unknown. And um, so I was part of series one of Live at the Apollo, which was another game changing moment. I mean, it's lucky that you're very funny. That's, I mean, that's helps, right? I'm very funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's not, I always yeah. joke about that. I never used to do something to, to, to try and push the funny. I used to do my stuff in the mirror. And I thought, hey, it's not funny enough. So I used to take my clothes off and just stand there with one black sock. And if it wasn't funny then, then I wouldn't do it. <laughs> that was that was my litmus test. If it, if it didn't make me laugh standing in front of a mirror naked in one black sock, then just don't do it. <laughs> do you know Good what? Advice. My next my next, my next uh, little segment before we close was about love. So I'm not sure what. The... Oh, well, let's let's go to it. Um, can we very quickly talk about you and Brad Pitt? And uh, the story with Jennifer Aniston. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> it was suggested that you, you may have been responsible for the breakup. It's so embarrassing. It was just <laughs> basically, he'd been he'd just been married. And we were doing a film called Spy Game. And it's not often you have these moments where you're with a big... He was a big star. I don't think he's as big, he was as big a star as he is now. This is like 2000. And we're in Casablanca. And uh, it's a, we're in a cab together. I was his cab driver. And I was actually a CIA operative, a Lebanese CIA, CIA operative. And um, we had a lot of time in the car together. So he just said, to, how long have you been married? I said, eight years. How long have you been married? He goes, just a few months. And I said to him, he goes, do you have any advice? I said, well, marriage is going three stages, stage one, stage two, stage three, stage one is perfect. Stage two is where things get really difficult when you hate each other. And usually people get divorced. But if you fight through stage two, it could take a year, it could take 10 years. For some people, that like 15 years, if you stick with it, then you do get to a beautiful stage three where you become lifetime companions and it's wonderful. And then his phone went, he goes, excuse me, and he went away. And I could see he's on the phone and he looked ashen-faced. He came back. I said, who was that? He went, Jennifer. And I said, what happened? He goes, I think I've just gone to stage two. And, it, and I, we both laughed. <laughs> we both laughed. I said, well, there you go. It took you two months. <laughs> and um, I think there was some young journalist who said, oh, give me some, give me some goss. I said, no, I never kiss and tell. And I thought this was a fun story. I said, I don't know if you want his story. So I told the story, but she's This was years it. later, right? Years later. Yeah. So it happened in 2000, 2008. I told this thing. Mm. Just told the story I just told you now. And then my manager from America rang me up, livid. He goes, didn't we say you don't kiss and tell? What the hell? I just had Brad Pitt's office call me up. I said, what the hell is this shit? On TMZ, that gossip site, there was a picture of there was a picture of Brad and Jen, who now are divorced. Picture of Brad and Jen ripped in half. In the middle, there's a very jowly picture of me, like that, with a, with a microphone saying, "Comedian admits to breaking up Brad and Jennifer." I said, "What the hell is this shit?" They'd, she had spun it that I had admitted. Yeah, that's shocking. And it was shocking. So. Um, they had to do a lot of work to take it down. I mean, I've been Googling it. It's not there anymore. They've obviously taken it down. Sure. But it was false flag and it was nonsense. And But that was a... After all that chat with Brad Pitt, to think that he, him and his agency were so angry with me, <laughs> like as if I'd sold some story. It was, just so, it was so embarrassing. <laughs> but funny, when you think back at it, it's funny. Oh, yeah. It just, it did, it did, sorry, it did make me laugh. So I, had to, I thought I'd bring it up. I mean, it's been uh, it's been wonderful chatting. You've been so humble, so funny as always, and uh, look forward to seeing more of you in the future. Thank you so much for coming on Plot Twist. Thanks, so much, great. Cheers. Big thank you to Omar Jalili. Wasn't he brilliant? Wasn't he wonderful? A great balanced interview, actually. And I just thought, imagine if you were going for a walk in Suffolk and you walked past this man and you didn't necessarily know who he was because you walked past him quite quickly. Because I think if you saw his face, you'd probably know it was Omid. 
But all the stories and situations he's found himself in, you just, some people have got incredible stories to tell. And Omid is one of them. My first thought was what a lovely man he is. What amazing plot twist he had. I've got to be honest, when he said, <laughs> when he said at 12 about being wanting to be an astrophysicist, I, I was thinking, I was smirking at the time because I just thought, you're pulling my leg. You're leading me to some sort of punchline here. We had Sam Campbell on last year, full of mischief. I thought maybe Omid was going down a similar route. He wasn't. And <laughs> I think that story at 12, where the letter comes in thinking, to, you know, wanting to be an astrophysicist and then getting almost tricked, it kind of, I don't know if it toughened him up, but it kind of made him up his comedy game. And then, of course, three years later, he meets Mel Smith and what an impact he has on him. And talk about full circle like 15 years later being signed up to the same team as Mel uh, and, and and him also remembering Omid which I thought was so lovely and it probably is a testament to how funny and talented Omid is of course we spoke about Iran we could not really speak about that given how important it is to Omid and it should be to all of us of course and good on him for using his platform I think if there's one good thing we can take out of social media it is that issues and important stories are brought to light and the celebrities with a platform can amplify that even further. I thought that was really important. Overall, it was a brilliant chat. He's a fascinating man, very funny man, some great stories in there. A big thank you to him again. If you want a little bit more of Omid, I don't blame you. Go and listen to his podcast. Please tell me a story. It's a good pod. And of course, on top of that, you're obviously going to do what I'm going to do and watch Gladiator, The Mummy and... Mamma Mia, which is all available on Sky Cinema now. So that's what I'm about to do. So until next time, pals. Ciao.